0: Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapters 2 and 3 this morning. Um, But uh, Nathan has already, or Woody, has already read some of the text for us. We're not going to be able to read it all this morning just for time's sake. But I do want to remind you and encourage you one reason why uh, we put the text in the chimes this week, and you guys um, uh, get it when you get it. And uh, I think the Spirit told Jack to sing and he sang. Amen. I love it so much. What a joy. What a joy. And uh, let me just say, uh, we can't read it all, but if you would read the passage ahead of time, I do think it's helpful. We put that in the chimes for you and I'd encourage you to read that each week. It might help you follow along a little bit better, but you should be fine. I'm going to try my best to make sure that if you didn't read it, uh, you're gonna, I'm not going to punish you for it. How about that? We're going to try to make sure you can follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 3, I'm going to read to you verses 31 through 39 of 2 Samuel chapter 3, 31 through 39. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Get in verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept, and the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool die? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Nair. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And, oh, God, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see, even when life seems to consist of rough edges. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We like neat and tidy stories. If you go to the movies and uh, watch a movie, And you come home, and I say, how was it? Or, you know, later at church or something, how was that movie? If somebody doesn't like a movie, almost always it's they say, I just didn't really like the ending. I just didn't find things were tied up the way I wanted to be tied up. I kind of felt like I was left hanging. I sort of just felt like it wasn't as, well, neat and tidy as it should have been. You know, we like neat and tidy stories. We prefer them. The princess was captured. The prince rescued her. And they all lived happily ever after. And nobody wants to talk to the guy who's like, well, actually, what you don't know is that the fact that the prince had once had someone else kidnapped. So it's kind of hypocritical uh, for him to be upset about her being kidnapped, don't you think? Don't tell us about the fact that sometimes the princess now looks out the window of the castle and wonders whether or not she traded one prison for another. The old life for the new life. Don't tell us about the fact that the prince and the princess eventually split up. Don't tell us that, yes, technically the prince was there when she was rescued, but it was actually a small group of mercenaries that did the dirty work. No, we like our stories neat and tidy, and we don't want anyone coming along and telling us anything different than what we know about it. Stop it. Just stop it. They all lived happily ever after. I like my stories neat and tidy. And this one, it's a simple story, right? Saul was a bad king, David was a good king. Saul died, even though David had already been anointed as king, he didn't become king until Saul died, but Saul died, and David became king, and everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, So often, that's how we store the story in our mind, is it not? In fact, some of you probably, even as you read these chapters, said, I didn't even remember anybody named Ishbosheth in the Bible. I will say, for the preacher's sake, I liked it better when Saul was the other king, then now when it's Ishbosheth, because I'm gonna to have to say Ishbosheth all morning long, and I need you to pray for me that I'm I don't mess that one up. There's a there's a lot of complications that could come out of mispronouncing Ishbosheth if you're not careful. <laughs> we do this with all sorts of history, with all sorts of stories. We oversimplify them. We treat them the way we wish they were, neat and tidy. And sometimes I think we do this with our own story, don't we? with our the own promises that we cling to from the Lord. We expect our stories, we expect our lives to be simple, neat, and tidy. And I'll tell you what else we do. We assume everyone else's stories are simple, neat, and tidy. But all of us know the truth, don't we? None of us have lives. None of us have stories. None of us have situations that are as simple, as neat, and as tidy as they seem. We expect our stories to be such, but in all reality... In the story of David, and in all of life, there are always going to be some rough edges. There are going to be some things that just don't quite fit the mold. I talk to you all a lot about the fact we have to reject an REM theology, just assuming that all the time it needs to be shiny, happy people holding hands. It's just simply not what life's like, certainly not what the witness of the Bible is. Things are not as neat and tidy as we tend to think. God doesn't always do things on our timelines or in the ways that we expect. The question I ask for you today is this, what will this do to your faith? What will this do to my faith? How will it impact how we see the life that God's given us? How will it impact how we see God? When God doesn't act according to our expectations, how will we react? When we find ourselves in the rough edges of life, how will we view God? How will we see things? My friends, when you see a friend or a brother or sister in the rough edges of life, how will you respond? This morning, I want to show you three truths that will help you navigate the rough edges of life. Uh, three truths, I think, that will help you navigate these difficult moments, these things that aren't quite as clear, these situations that don't seem to quite make sense based on what we think we know, based on what we think things ought, how we think things ought to be going. Three truths, then, this morning, to bolster your faith when God's ways don't meet your expectations. Three, three truths to help bolster your faith when God's ways don't meet your expectations. Here's the first truth this morning. You probably could guess it already. God's work is not always neat and tidy. What God does is not always neat and tidy. Now, after consulting with the Lord, David has heard the news that Saul is dead. After consulting with the Lord, I want you to bear this in mind, he consults with the Lord and asks him, Should I go? Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I go to this city in Judah? This isn't just asking, should I go? This is David asking of the Lord, is it time for me to begin the process of becoming king, at least in Judah? And the Lord answers and says, yes, in verses 1 through 4. It also, in early in chapter 2, David, I think sincerely, but also it happens to be, not, despite its sincerity, a shrewd political move, he rewards the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead. This is a, a, a place that's not in Judah I want you to bear this in mind. He he rewards the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead and praises them for their work in burying Saul, already doing a good job of making overtures to people outside the territory over which he already reigns. Now think about this for a moment. If I were to say, who was king after King Saul? Who was king of Israel after King Saul? Almost everyone in the room, myself included, right? Right? Myself included. If this was a question at trivia night somewhere, I would probably, everyone would be livid at me. And they'd say, what in the world did you go to seminary for? Because everyone guesses David, right? Who was king of Israel after Saul? It was David, right? No, my friends. Uh, no, my friends. Uh, David's kingship begins with a divided kingdom. Now, David is king over Judah after Saul. But temporarily... Uh, you have Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, who becomes king. Slowly, over time, I-, I think, Ishbosheth consolidates his rule over the northern tribes of Israel. Now, understand, this is really not thanks to any greatness in Ishbosheth. In fact, the way the scripture talks about this, you'll notice the operator, the, the one who's really pulling the strings behind the puppet kingdom of Ishbosheth is the military leader Abner, the commander of Saul's armies. And the Bible says Abner took Ishbosheth. It says he took him, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Now we have a little bit of a problem in the text here as we're trying to understand the story. You'll notice it says that David was king over Judah for seven and a half years. As you're reading that, you might read and say, Ishbosheth was only king of Israel for two years. So, what explains the difference? Well, scholars sort of try to reconcile this in two different ways. First of all, that perhaps Ishbosheth was deposed after two years, but it was another five years until David was able to consolidate rule over all the northern kingdoms of Israel. Or some scholars kind of go the opposite direction. They say it probably took Ishbosheth, five years. In fact, if you notice in the text, the way that this is described, the different places over which Abner made Ishbosheth king, there's sort of a, a, a geographical flow to it that makes it seem like he started in one place and sort of spread outward, that it took him five years to really become king over all of Israel. And I say that to say that we might read that and be troubled by the way the Bible speaks about these things, but they're good. Clear, honest answers about what probably happened. More than likely, I think over time, slowly, Ishbosheth solidified and consolidated his rule. And then by the time he was over all of Israel, maybe he was able to reign for about two years. I say all this to say as the wiling and power of Abner bring Ishbosheth to power, as David is ruler only over Judah, as our conception of how the story goes in our mind sort of gets blown up by this. I want us to remember this. God's work, God's work is not always neat and tidy. What God does is not always neat and tidy. It is not always wrapped up perfectly and beautifully from our perspective with a pretty little bow on top. Sometimes I'm afraid that when we encounter situations in life that don't quite meet our expectations... When we encounter situations in life that are just sort of outside the mold of what we expected. Some of you right now might be looking at your life and you might be saying, this is just not what I thought it would look like. This is not the plan I had for me. Some of you right now may be frustrated with God because you feel like he dealt you a bad hand because things just aren't quite what you think they should be. So often in those moments, our assumption is that God is not at work. We are so often victims of our own expectations. Now, I, I deal with this all the time with folks. When I talk to them in, in counseling situations, other situations, so often we are victims of our own expectations. Just a simple shift in perspective would make a huge difference in our happiness sometimes. We should be thankful for what God has done rather than focus on what He hasn't done. But it is easy. Let me just say. I don't want to preach uh, to y'all and not preach to myself and recognize and admit it can be so difficult. Um, Very, very, very difficult when what God is up to, when what's happening in our life doesn't quite fit with what we expected it to be. When God's not doing what we thought God would do, it can be so difficult, it can be grueling. I think sometimes our assumption is not only that God is not at work, but perhaps even that God has abandoned us. God doesn't care about us anymore. But as we read the Bible, as we read the Bible, as we become more familiar with the ways of God with His people, let me, as a brief aside, remind you, this is why I preach from the Old Testament. This is why I think you ought to read the Old Testament. Not only to see what God was at work doing before Jesus came into the world, but to be familiarized with the way God works. The way God acts, the things God does, it's good to know how God behaves. And the Old Testament is a gorgeous repository of the ways of God. You can look and see what God and how God has treated His people over the years, how God has worked, what God has done. As you become more familiar with the ways of God with His people, don't you see the way that there are so often what we look like, what we see as rough edges in the work of God? It's so rarely neat and tidy when God seems to be leading us in a certain direction think about it does he always make it easy does he always give us peace in our hearts now often we talk about that God just gave me a peace about this and I've had situations where God called me to do something and I knew he was calling me to do it and he gave me peace in my heart but not every time not every time And some of you right now might feel like God's calling you to do something, and you say, I think I'm supposed to have a peace in my heart. Folks, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there are rough edges. God doesn't always just show us His will from a beam of light coming down out of heaven, and the angels sweetly sing, and it's so clear what we ought to do. Sometimes you're struggling to do the right thing. In fact, sometimes it seems like the wrong thing is the most obvious and easy and peaceful choice to make. It's not always case when somebody repents of their sin consider how God often works when somebody repents of their sin does God always give them immediate total deliverance from temptation well that's the testimonies we normally hear because people are afraid to let you hear the other ones testimonies we normally hear is I got found in a in a ditch drunk and then somebody told me about the gospel and I prayed to Jesus and I Repented and for the rest of my life, never once did I even crave a a moment to be drunk. A drop of alcohol the rest of my life. I didn't want to be drunk ever again. I I was totally delivered from the temptation toward drunkenness. And I think those kinds of things happen. I think God's very able to do that. But is that how our deliverance from temptation normally works? No. No. Sometimes we think something's wrong with us when it doesn't work that way. When there's rough edges in God's work. But sometimes there's a lifetime of struggle with temptation. Sometimes we're never delivered fully from temptation. There's almost always situations where we go back and forth on wrestling with sin. When God is at work in a church, is it always clean and neat and tidy? Of course not. When the Holy Spirit begins to blow into a church, when God begins to work in a church, sometimes there's difficulty and travail. And even in the work of God in the church, in the Bible... In life, are there always clear heroes and clear villains and obvious success stories and total victories? No, not always. Probably not even usually. There are so often, almost always, rough edges to the work of God. Don't let your faith be shattered when God's work isn't neat and tidy. Uh, Second of all, God's timing is not our timing. God's work isn't always neat and tidy, and second of all, God's timing is not our timing. Now, the story continues, and what happens as the story continues, really in the big middle chunk of these two chapters, is that the house of Saul and the house of David begin a conflict, a war over the throne of Israel. Now, the commander of Ishbosheth's army, as I've mentioned already, is Abner, the son of Nair, who he inherited from his father Saul. Now, we already know Abner, but in these verses, beginning verse 12 of chapter 2, we become introduced in this section to a man named Joab, who is commander over David's army. And so, Joab is commander over David's army, and then uh, Abner is commander over Ishbosheth's army. Now, historians tell us that this sort of battle happened. There was a ritualistic battle that ensues. It's a 12-on-12 12 12 battle. One translation says, let's let the lads go out and play before us. In other words, let's have this kind of ritualistic battle, a 12-on-12 12 12 battle to kind of settle this, to begin either begin or end the battle. Now, they go, and it seems like they each take each other like this and thrust the sword in the other side, and all 12 of them die in the battle. Now, in antiquity, there are countless images of this sort of battle happening. I don't quite understand it, but it's sort of how things were done. And so, this 12-on-12 12 12 battle happens. These war games happen. They're in front of everyone, and they all die at the same time, it seems like the text says. And so, as all 12 of these die, what happens is nothing's resolved by this smaller altercation. And so, a larger battle breaks out. And in the midst of this battle, one of Joab's brothers, his name's Asahel, he begins to run after Abner. Begins to run after Ishbosheth's commander. Now, Asahel, Joab's brother, is very, very fast, and he's running after. Abner. And Abner says, there's no need for this. There's no need for blood to be shed. Turn aside, turn aside. And Asahel refuses to turn aside. He refuses to turn aside. And so finally, Abner, in a really brilliant sort of military move, he stops abruptly and thrusts the butt of his spear into Asahel and kills him right there on the spot. In fact, the Bible says the spear, the butt of the spear, not even the, not even the business end of the spear, they're running so fast that the spear goes straight through Asahel And kills him. And so in the midst of this battle, you have at the end not only a sad situation, but you have Abner killing Asahel. So in the midst of this conflict for the throne, this greater battle, a new element is introduced. And it's the element of a blood feud between Abner and Joab. These two commanders now have a vendetta against one another. In particular, it's uh, Joab that really feels like he owes uh, Abner revenge. Ultimately in this battle, David's troops are victorious but it's only just the beginning of the battle. In fact, I want you to notice something that the Bible says in chapter 3 verse 1. We talk about this one battle here for the rest of chapter 2 but notice what the Bible says in chapter 3 verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. A long war. In fact, during this season, the author immediately, to try to help us get a sense of how long things are going, he's already told us at least seven and a half years this was an ongoing uh, conflict, but David had six sons in the meantime. I mean, life is happening here. And I want you to remember, David had already spent years uh, alienated from Saul. He'd spent years anointed as king and not king, and finally Saul dies, and it's time to take the throne. And what happens? immediately a long war begins. Now, I don't know about you, but as soon as I heard the news of Saul dying, I would think, finally, this is over with. Our long national nightmare is over. I can take the throne. These should be better. And then you're talking about then having a year, a seven and a half year long war that ensues. Consider this for just a moment. God's timing is not always our timing. God's timing is not always our timing. I'm going to tell you all something. I hate waiting. Y'all hate waiting? I don't know. Some of y'all might like waiting. I had to spend some time in an airport recently. And there's no worse feeling in the world to me than sitting in an airport. And then looking down at my phone and seeing a text that says, We apologize to inform you that your flight has been delayed. I'm already livid. I want to be in this airport. It's $13 for a bottle of water. I I want to get on the plane and go. The only consolation I have in this moment is I'm about to get on something that goes 580 miles an hour. I feel better then. But sitting there, I can't stand it. It drives me crazy. I'd rather drive 20 hours than fly two because I don't want to wait for 30 minutes on an airplane. I hate waiting. But I want to tell you something. When it comes to walking with the Lord, when it comes to your, to your walk with Christ, time is your friend, not your enemy. Now, when it's time to get on an airplane, I think time is your enemy. I get it. I'm with you, okay? I'll concede that point, but when it comes to walking with the Lord, time is your friend, not your enemy. You see, we often think that slowness, that waiting, the passing of time, Things not happening when we want them to happen. We see those as problems, don't we? I see those as problems. But in fact, we see them so much as problems that they can even lead us to doubt. Grow frustrated with God, be angry with God perhaps. But I want you to know, my friends, those of you who are waiting, uh, those of you who are sitting there, those of you who feel like God Airlines has delayed your flight, those of you are sitting there frustrated right now, I want you to know God is not wasting your time. God is not wasting that time. God wasn't wasting David's time. Even after Saul is out of the picture, God is not wasting David's time in leaving him to wait to be king. God, God never wastes anything and especially not time. When it comes to walking with Jesus, time is your friend. My friends, if you find yourself frustrated by God's timing, I want you to be reminded that's not a glitch, that's not a bug, that's His design. It's how God works, it's what God does in the rough edge of waiting take the time to walk with Jesus take the time to learn patience take the time to grow to change and to trust that God has better timing than you could ever imagine he's at work even in the waiting and maybe especially in the waiting my friends God's work is not always neat and tidy God's timing is not our timing and finally, God's righteousness is always right. God's righteousness is always right. Um, a conflict develops between Ishbosheth and Abner. I would guess that Ishbosheth becomes just a little bit frustrated with Abner in general because he's the true power you know it's hard to kind of feel emasculated in that way especially if you're supposed to be the king and i'm sure at times ishbosheth would hear the people whispering things like you know he's not really not anything like his daddy if it wasn't for abner i'm sure david would already be king here in fact there are groups of people in israel who want david to be king abner's about to exploit that fact in a moment i'm, I'm sure ishbosheth's struggling a little bit and so it just took one thing to break the bond between ishbosheth and Abner. It seems that Abner takes for himself in chapter 3, verse 7, one of Saul's concubines. And this is just too far over the line for Ishbosheth. Not only are you the true power in this kingdom, not only uh, are you the one who's calling the shots, but on top of this, you're going to presume to take one of my father's concubines, one of the concubines of the king. Perhaps Ishbosheth was becoming a little paranoid. It ran in the family. That's for sure. Ishbosheth rebukes. Abner and it enrages him and he decides to take his services to David. David requires that Abner brings his wife Michal back to him. We don't know exactly why David wanted Michal back. It doesn't seem like it's just pure true love that that's the case. It's part of the way, one of the ways that he has a claim to the throne that he's married to the former king's daughter. Poor Paltiel, her new wife, was weeping all the way as Abner took her back to David in this process, Abner begins some secret maneuverings to help consolidate the northern tribes of Israel under David's reign. Because this is an amazing story. I mean, you can really just see the way that all these things are coming together, the intrigue and all the, all the things that are happening. Finally, the new relationship is sealed with a feast, and Abner leaves just in time for Joab to return from a raid, loaded with spoil for King David. Joab was suspicious of Abner and, don't forget, still angry with him for killing his brother. And so he refused to believe that he was there to serve in good faith. And so he murdered Abner in revenge for the killing of Asahel. Not in an honorable way either. He didn't call him out in battle, but he snuck up and murdered him. And what does David do? What, what does David say? Boys will be boys. I guess he shouldn't have killed Asahel if he was going to do that this is just what life's like in war. You know, Abner was going to be helpful, but Joab's been faithful the whole time. I guess I better just let this slide. Not quite. David curses Joab and his household, and he instructs all those around him to mourn the loss of Abner, even as he himself mourns by fasting and making a show of his distaste for the wickedness of Joab. What does David do? He recognizes and lives out the fact that God's Righteousness is right no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how rough the edges are. It, it might have been easy for David to simply let this slide or to allow the blood feud to continue just to keep everybody, everybody happy, but instead he chooses the path of righteousness even in the midst of the chaos of the rough edges that he's in. And I want you to know something, my friends. There will be few times in your life when you are more tempted to sin than when you are in seasons with rough edges. Because you feel justified in it. If God was keeping up His end of the deal, I'd keep up my end of the deal. Right? But God's righteousness is always right. And I want you to know you will compound your grief by sinning it will not bring you the relief you think it will bring you it will not bring you the joy you think it will bring you it will not bring you the clarity you think it will bring you it will compound your misery but if you choose righteousness even in the midst of the rough edges of life you will find joy even in the midst of circumstances you don't prefer consider jesus consider how our lord did just that how he chose righteousness in the darkest moments of his life My friends, here's the reality. No matter what season of life you're in, no matter what's going on in your life today, all of us, every one of us live in a rough edge. We live in a storm front of history between the dawning and the already of the kingdom of God and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The present form of this world is passing away and the kingdom of God is dawning. And my friends, that is a rough edge. We all live there. We all dwell there. The Christian life, let's be honest, it's not as neat and tidy as we wish. Nor are God's blessings. I believe if you follow Jesus, you will be blessed. Right? But the blessings don't always look the way we want them to to look. They're not always the way they are. Our own sanctification is not as neat and tidy as we wish it was. Uh, My friends, God's timing is so rarely what He we want it to be. It's so rarely when we want it to be. Righteousness can feel so wrong because of circumstances, but it is always right. And don't we see the way that all of these things are illustrated so perfectly in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ? God did not spare His own Son suffering. God did not spare His own Son the betrayal of His friends. God did not spare His own Son being lied about. God did not spare His own Son all of what it means to live in a fallen world. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ pressed on trusting His Father even when it meant crucifixion. And oh, brothers and sisters, He was crucified for you in order that one day you might live forever with Him and with His Father in heaven. Look to Him. Look to Jesus and hope in Him even now. He is faithful. His promises are true. What He offers you is perfect and good, even when it doesn't look like it, even when the edges seem rough. What Jesus offers you is perfect. Trust Him. Trust Him today. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I believe He is faithful. I believe He is faithful. I believe if you will turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. I believe it with all my heart. And second of all, uh, you may be uh, looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. And finally, if you're a Christian, you just need to pray and you're maybe in a time of rough edges, you want someone to pray for you, I'll be right here waiting on you after this prayer. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come or stay right where you are and do business with the Lord.